Hello there, and welcome to another episode of Pete on the Couch. Uh, I'm just calling it that because, as you know if you're watching this rather than listening, I'm sitting on my old couch that I bought recently. Um, I really should think of a name uh, for these reflections, maybe make it into a podcast, uh, the Peter Rollins Industrial Complex or something like that. Uh, but as of now, there is no name, but I appreciate you clicking in and watching this. Before I start uh, jumping into what I want to look at, and by the way, what I want to look at is uh, ideology again. I want to come back to that subject, which I looked at a little bit last week. So I want to come back, look at how ideology functions. Then I want to look at that in relation to the religious conception of God, and then use that to try to kind of offer a preliminary understanding of what parotheology is attempting to do. But before I do that, I want to tell you about a course that I've just launched. So basically, um, last year I did a nine-part course uh, over 10 hours on one of my favorite uh, theological texts. It's actually one of the few theological books I like. I'm not a huge fan of confessional theology, but I discovered this book uh, many years ago. Actually, somebody came onto my website and they just said, oh, it sounds like you're saying similar things to this guy, Paul Hessert. Have you ever read his book, Christ in the End of Meaning? And usually, you know, I, I'll, I'll respond to something like that, but I often don't look up the books that people recommend. But there was something about the book that intrigued me. I looked it up, I bought it, and I was blown away by it. And what's even more special is it's very rare. I mean, you know, this has been out of print for a long time. Uh, it's hard to get. Uh, it used to be super cheap. You know, you can get it for five cents or ten cents. And um, if you if you go to Amazon at the right time, you'll still get it for super cheap. But every time I mention it, the price goes up and up and up. And uh, you know, it goes as high as five thousand, ten thousand dollars. Now, the reason why it sells for ten thousand dollars is not because somebody thinks that there's a person out there who's gonna pay 10 grand for this. Uh, a friend explained it to me once. He said that uh, these uh, sellers have algorithms that basically just automatically price books. And if a book has been selling for 10 cents for 10 years, and then suddenly it sells more and more and more and the price keeps jumping, it can mess up the algorithms and uh, they can start to price the book at ridiculous levels. But anyway, that's the book, Christ in the End of Meaning. Um, it is a different way of looking at many of the things that I talk about. And um, it's a book that I've uh, read and reread many times. It's kind of falling apart, actually. There's a, uh, lots of coffee stains and whatnot in it. Um, and so I did a course on it, and I released that to my patrons. And what I did yesterday is now, you know, six months or a year later, I have released it on my website uh, for pay what you think is fair. So if you go onto my website and you go to the market bit, you'll go down and you'll see a course called Beyond Belief. Uh, and that's, that's the course. So it is 10 hours of material, audio and visual, plus you get a PDF of the book because it's out of print and it's hard to get. Uh, and uh, you don't have to read the book to do the course, 
Um, but you know, it, it will definitely help if you do the course and also read the book at the same time. So recommend you check that out. I'll probably have it on my website for about a month. Uh, as I say, I'm doing this pay what's fair because I want to make sure that my work is accessible to everybody. If you don't have any money, uh, if you're broke, you can pay as little as one cent uh, for, for it. Um, but you know, if you have the resources um, and you think it's, you know, you want to support me and you want to kind of honor the work behind it and et cetera, et cetera, you can give me, you know, $5,000, right? <laughs> you can give me whatever you want, but uh, that's totally up to you. It means that the work is accessible to everybody. And uh, so it's a little experiment. If this works, I'm going to put on other courses throughout the year. I'll maybe do three or four a year. So we'll see how that goes. Um, and actually what I want to talk about today, I suppose actually is a good introduction to this book. So uh, I'll, try to, I'll try to bring it round to Hessert's work at the end. So uh, basically a week or two ago, I looked at ideology and I listed five dimensions to ideology. And in that video, I talked primarily about how ideology covers over the antagonisms, the tensions and the contradictions that exist within social reality. Uh, so today I actually want to look at three ways that ideology does that. And then, yeah, we're going to look at it in relation to the religious conception of God. So how does ideology function to hide from us the antagonisms that exist within our political and social and cultural and religious lives. Uh, the first is the most simple. Uh, and this is the kind of, uh, if you've done anything on ideology before, you know, you'll know this one is the most obvious one, which is that ideology um, prevents us from seeing uh, kind of, in a sense, what's obvious, right? So I'll take an example. Uh, this is an example from Marx, actually where Marx says, a king is a king because we treat him as a king, right? But we treat the person as a king because we think they have some sort of kingly dimension. Uh, so basically what happens is the king is just a king because we treat them as a king, but we treat them as a king because we think they're a king. Um, and that is kind of uh, an obscuring of social reality. It's the same with police or with a judge in court, is that it's not like Star Wars where the Jedi have some sort of, was it microchloria or something, something in their bodies that makes them a Jedi. That's kind of like a symbol of how we often think about um, authority figures in our world. We don't think it, but we, we treat them as if they are a king or a judge or a police officer whenever they are that, simply because they are that within our symbolic network. The network of symbols that we live in, the constellation of the social world, gives them that position. They are not a king because of some divine power, some sort of like ability to force choke or something like that. They are simply a king because of an accident of circumstance and because of the symbolic structure that they inhabit. So that's what ideology does. It often takes contingent things in our world and says that's the way they should be. That's the way they always are. Like an economic system is not some contingent thing. It has like a divine right 
the invisible hand of the market or something you know has that god like sense to it it's not some something that exists because we give it its existence it exists independent of us and that is a way that we naturally inhabit the world now early critiques of ideology were designed to try to show people the truth that existed behind social reality that the justifications for how the world actually is um, are exactly that justifications rationalizations and the world actually can be different we can conceptualize different ways of interacting with other people interacting in our relationships and also as as a country as a state but um, what happened is we we discovered that often when you educate people it doesn't free them from the system that they're in that actually people continue to give themselves to ideological systems that um, that they know are bad. I mean, one example, I've used it before, but uh, if, you, if, if you know somebody who's going to a prosperity church, a church that promises that, you know, if you believe and you pray, uh, you'll be able to, you know, get the money that you need. You'll get that new car, that new house, you'll get over that illness you have, or you'll be able to see healing for someone else. And then, you know, you go to them and you show them that uh, there's no difference between the wealth of people in that community and the wealth of people in the church. You know, you kind of start to show them data that says that, that this ideology doesn't deliver what it seems to claim that it delivers. And the naive idea is when people are confronted with that information, they will go, oh, okay, oh yeah, that's, that's crazy, and they'll leave. But of course, that usually doesn't happen. Um, and so uh, a lot of contemporary uh, academic discussion about ideology has focused on why that is. And in other videos, I've, I've talked about that. Um, but this shows that even when we can see that social reality has certain contingent dimensions and problems and antagonisms, we can still remain just as involved with it. So that brings us to the second way that ideology can function. So in the first, let's say it like this, in the first, you don't see, acknowledge or experience the antagonisms that exist within your social life. Um, to, to give a personal example as well, this isn't just all about politics. You could be in a relationship where you know your partner's having an affair um, and you don't really see it you kind of know deep down there's something not uh right but you don't know it consciously it comes out in maybe outbursts of anger it comes out in inability to sleep it comes out in uh you know how you treat your kids so there's a but you don't see it you're not you don't consciously see what's going on there's an antagonism and a and a, a a problem in the relationship that is going unacknowledged the second could be described as seeing the antagonism but not acknowledging it or experiencing it and this is a little bit more strange this is where someone sees the problems within say their relationship or within their society but they fundamentally refuse to acknowledge them. In fact, they cover over what they know. Uh, and what they do is then they become like an extreme uh, 
opposite is called reaction formation. It's like if someone gets really angry at you um, when you question their belief, for example, that can often show that they are not confident in their belief but lack confidence. So what you're saying to them is actually um, is actually drawing out something that they know but they don't want to acknowledge. Uh, let me give an example. There's lots of like think of like a kid. If a kid is caught stealing a toy from a friend um, and they adamantly deny it, they don't just lie, right? They've been caught, the toy's been found in their room, and yet they stick to the story. They get angry about it, they get frustrated. They're like, are you calling me a liar? Do you not believe me, etc., etc." Um, and this, uh, this overreaction uh, of the child, it's like the child actually believes their own fiction. They know the reality, but they are not acknowledging it. It's kind of like uh, during the Stalinist purges where they would Photoshop or remove people from photos. Um, and like people knew, everybody knew, but, but nobody acknowledged it. They kind of refused to acknowledge uh, what, was, what was going on. Um, Shizek uses the example of Japan during, uh, at the end of the Second World War that uh, many authorities in Japan didn't acknowledge the defeat and in fact created false magazines with pictures of the Americans admitting defeat to the, to the Japanese. They knew what was happening, but they refused to acknowledge it. Um, and then there's a third dimension of ideology. And this is perhaps the most interesting of all. It is where someone sees the, the behind the kind of like the veil they see the, the problems in, the, in the, the society, they acknowledge them, but they don't experience that, uh, that tension in their lives. And this is called fetishistic disavowal. Uh, a good example of this would be a miser. So the stereotypical miser, let's take it as some guy, who, an old man who lives in poverty, uh, you know, like dirty house, uh, no friends, uh, grumpy, right? But they have all of this money in the bank. Now, the miser can see that they live in squalor. They can acknowledge it, don't deny it, they can see it, right? Um, but they don't experience the squalor as long as they have the money in the bank. So when Simone Weil asks uh, the question, what does the miser lose when, they, when he loses his money? And, he, and she's thinking of Aesop's fable of this miser who gets his money stolen and like totally overreacts. Um, Simone Weil is asking this very interesting question because of course the miser loses their money. So if this miser suddenly there's a bank robbery or you know, some, you know, stolen identification, someone steals all their money um, and the miser freaks out. You go, well, what has the miser lost? Of course they've lost their money, but the money was just a number on a screen because they weren't spending it, they weren't using it. They were just looking at it, counting it, right? So they lose something because the person cracks up. And what uh, someone like Lacan would say is, the miser loses the phantasmic object that prevents them from experiencing the squalor of their life, right? A fetish is what prevents you from experiencing what you know and acknowledge. Uh, maybe an example of this would be if you break up with somebody and you feel okay about it and you're getting on with your life but then a year later you see your ex with somebody else and when you see that you kind of freak out right the uh, 
the fetish is in a sense this idea that the other person is single and available, hasn't got over you or whatever, right? But as soon as you see that they are with somebody else, it suddenly hits you and you, you have this, this experience of despair. Now, in relation to this then, the first is you don't see, acknowledge your experience. The second is you see, but you don't acknowledge your experience. And the third is you see and you acknowledge, but you don't experience. So how, does this, you know, how do we uh, apply this to the religious notion of God? Well, in a nutshell, you know, the religious notion of God is uh, a being of non-contradiction that gives meaning to the universe and to our social reality. That beneath the seeming contradictions and, and, and issues and problems of society, there is an overarching meaning. Kind of like a great painting. If you see it too close, all you see is something distorted, but you know there is a beautiful painting. If only you could step back far enough, you would be able to see it. So God is what, you know, in philosophy is called the guarantor of meaning. God guarantees that the universe is a meaningful space um, and, that, uh, and that the antagonisms we experience can be explained. Now, you have people who go to church and they believe this notion of God, right? So they actually, they don't see that the religious notion of God um, is a kind of a formation, a creation of the subjective symbolic world in which we inhabit. The Feuerbachian notion that our gods are expressions of, of something in our society, in ourselves. Um, so, you know, you have people who don't see that at all, right? It just, they, they go, they believe in this religious notion of God, what, they, what Bonhoeffer called the deus ex machina, right? But then you also have people who say go to church and they see the contradictions in this notion. Maybe they've studied a little bit, but they don't acknowledge it. So for example, imagine somebody who is obsessed with apologetics and they have all of these apologetics books, loads of Josh McDowell and all of that, right? Now the sheer amount of their apologetics books and all of their creationist books and the amount of time that they dedicate to it shows that or hints that they are actually full of doubt about their belief, right? And so the way they cover it over as a reaction formation is the exact opposite. If someone's just confident and believes in God and all of that in this religious sense, they you know may read a couple of apologetics books, but they don't you know go crazy. But there are people who, it's like they are trying to not so much convince their friends, but convince themselves to not acknowledge the tensions and antagonisms that they feel within their religious uh, worldview. And then there's the third. The third, it might be the strangest, it's someone who sees that the religious notion of God is full of contradictions. They acknowledge it, but they don't experience it. And this brings us to Nietzsche's notion of the death of God. In this, uh, I'll give you an example, someone I know. Someone I know. Uh, they grew up in church and they uh, went through youth group and they believed in the religious notion of God until when they were in their 20s they began to question it they began to read more they saw contradictions they saw problems they didn't uh, suppress that 
and throw themselves into apologetics and not hang out with people who disagreed with them, watch only programs that would you know, allow them to disavow what they see, right? They actually went, okay, I'm gonna move away from this. They left church, they left it all behind, nothing, right? But years later, now we're talking 10 years later, that person found out that their old youth pastor no longer believed, right? Left the church, had no interest in religion or God or anything. And far from being, you know, happy about this or thinking nothing of it, that person felt traumatized. Suddenly they were like, they were really depressed because what had happened is the youth pastor was a type of fetish object. They didn't have to believe, but as long as the youth pastor believed, they could see and acknowledge this death of God experience in their lives without experiencing it. But when this other person felt it, they felt it. It's like, you know, someone who doesn't believe, but their parents believe and are naive believers. But then they discover that their father and their mother have a crisis of faith, leave the church and don't care about it. For some people that can be deeply traumatic because the parents were the fetish object that allowed them to not believe and be open about not believing without experiencing the existential crisis that that breakdown of our kind of ideological worldview should have within our lives. Because um, that's what a fetish does. It's an object that, like a picture, uh, you know, you, you break up with somebody but you have a picture of them and as long as you have the picture of them, you feel okay, but then the picture gets destroyed and it's the destruction of the picture that, that, that throws you over the edge. I actually, uh, one of my close friends, um, his mother died. And when his mother died, he started going out with this woman. And it was, you know, it wasn't a great relationship and it went on for about two years. And he never mourned the loss of his mother. I mean, he knew that his mother had died. He acknowledged it. But there was something, and he probably cried at times, but he didn't fully experience that loss in his life until he broke up with this woman. And the breakup, it wasn't just that he broke down whenever the relationship ended. Um, when the relationship ended, suddenly he started to mourn the death of his mother. So the relationship kind of, in a sense, prevented him from experiencing the trauma of the breakdown. Now in parotheology, the idea is that it is a practice that is designed to help you see, acknowledge and experience this death of the religious notion of God. In fact, I would actually say it's not primarily concerned with seeing or acknowledging, it's primarily concerned with experiencing. Experiencing that so that a different religionless understanding of faith can arise. One that invites us into a different form of life, into a different form of belief that transcends theism and atheism, and that is true to the Christian narrative. And that's where I'll come back to this book. This book is an expression of what that religionless reading of Christianity looks like. And it is a, a, a very thoughtful reading. So if you're interested in going a bit deeper into these ideas, check out my course that's on um, my website, peterrollins.com, and um, you can just pay whatever spare. Thanks very much. I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.